In Paris, in the late 1880s, something spectacular was happening. Every day, 200 men would gather on the Champ de Mars on the banks of the River Seine to create a masterpiece of modern engineering. Day after day they gathered, using state-of-the-art construction techniques to create a structure that defied gravity. From the complexities of building foundations in waterlogged ground, to the use of hydraulic jacks and prefabricated iron elements, the construction activities were quite simply phenomenal. And this is exactly what its proponents intended, because in 1889 Paris would host the 10th ever Universal Exposition. This World Fair was an opportunity for France to showcase cultural, industrial and scientific developments to an international audience. The theme was the French Revolution. It was 100 years since the storming of the Bastille and the overthrowing of feudalism. The government wanted to reaffirm the strength and stability of its republican system and restore its status among the world's greatest powers. Gustave Eiffel and his engineers Coquelin and Nugier designed La Dame de Fer to form the centrepiece of the expo, a dazzling demonstration of France's industrial power, a monument the likes of which had never been seen before. The 300-metre-tall wrought iron tower soared into the sky and enabled visitors to go where no person had gone before. And although they did not know it at the time, this tower changed the skyline of cities forever and broadened the horizon for radio communications technology. And it was here, on the first floor of the Eiffel Tower, more than a century later, that the idea for Engineering Matters was born. Whoa, 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 what's this music? Why have you put this in here? We got rid of this after episode 27? Yes, but this is our origin story. And this theme tune is part of our history. And it can remain part of history. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Bernadette Valentine. I'm John Young. And back in 2018, we started this podcast. We have told many origin stories over the years, but we've never told our own. I think there were 844 test results that came back that, that completely failed. Um, it was the 845th that we got some success. In the space of five months, we went from having a production line and a, a very high level process to first vials coming off the line, which we knew would then end up in patients. The project is the hospital that's designed to save people's lives. By achieving that four months early, we were going to save more lives. And of course, there was also the Eiffel Tower episode. In 
in this episode of Engineering Matters. It was really uh, an achievement in terms of engineering. Uh, he was at the height of his glory in 1889, showed people around, he was internationally famous. He was, he was, a, he was a genius and, and the, the methods that he started were developed across many, many decades and we now still use wind tunnels uh, to this day to design most of our towers. There was a serious discussion about whether to take it down. Uh, it was decided by a very narrow vote uh, to keep it, but it was really still in jeopardy until the era of radio. Yeah, so the first episode I ever worked on for Engineering Matters was episode number 32. Uh, so this would have been, I've got the exact date here, hang on a sec. So yeah, October 3rd, 2019. That was when it got published. And it was episode number 32, the untold story of Eiffel and his tower. Ross was the first person to join Engineering Matters a year after John and I started it. He's an audio producer for us and other podcasts made at Reby Media, which is the Engineering Matters parent company. And, and you know what? Since that episode, I, I swear I haven't put in any sort of like French themes into an episode since that episode because we haven't done anything like that at all. The episode goes on to explain that Eiffel was really the world's first wind engineer, that he introduced the concept of off-site manufacturing and prefabrication and secured the future of the tower by pioneering long-distance radio communications. What Ross didn't know when he worked on this episode was that there was another untold story connected to the Eiffel Tower. A lot of people don't realise that if you look closely at the first floor of the Eiffel Tower, there are 72 names in letters 60 centimetres high that wrap around the entire structure. 18 on each side. Ampère, Fourier, Coulon, Flachat, Gouin, Navier, Lavoisier, Gay-Lussac, Laplace. These were engineers and scientists that changed the world thanks to their technical genius and Eiffel wrote them on his tower for the world to see. And when I saw those names on a visit to Paris with my family, it inspired me. These were the celebrities of the 1800s, people who were solving the world's biggest problems for the greater good. We'd both worked in engineering at the start of our careers and had then been in technical and business journalism for over a decade. So we both had a passion for engineering and had seen how engineers develop solutions that could solve the biggest problems that we face in society today. But in a digital age, we needed to find new ways to tell those stories. I've always been passionate about audio. I grew up in a house that constantly played Radio 4. Audio documentaries have been the soundtrack to my life. But when we were technical journalists, there wasn't an outlet for it. The tools were expensive and there was no distribution route. And that all changed when the podcast app came out and we had a way of producing audio content that we could get directly in front of an audience without having to go through the big national broadcasters. This really opened up audio creation to so many more businesses and content providers. And created a new outlet for those longer form technical features that filled the pages of magazines that less and less people were reading. And it, uh, I thought that that 
was where features are going to belong in the digital transformation of magazines that podcasts were good. they they offer that same tactile experience because you're you're not you're hearing the person you hear the voices you 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 hear the narrator and their excitement and um and their reactions to what's being said or when they're on site and but you get soundscapes and understanding how you can transport someone to a time and a place just by changing the the the, the background sound to the conversation or the place that the, the conversation's being recorded this was another thing that Engineering Matters did differently. We focused on storytelling, creating audio documentaries. This is a lot more difficult than the more common podcast format, which is recording people having a discussion. We're influenced a lot by US podcasts, where the market developed more quickly. You're going to hear the influence of all of my favourite podcasts. Radio Lab has to be the best or certainly one of the best if not the best bit of audio production that's available at all anywhere it is so detailed and so layered and so clever and we try to take little bits in each episode that we love about the way they layer they, they layer sounds they layer conversations it's so difficult to do and they have so many more resources than we have and so many more people and so much more time per episode um, but you'll see those influences uh, in, in, in some of the episodes. Actually, this sounds a lot like Ross's job description. As we went out to talk to people and find these stories, Ross had to make them sound amazing. Well, I just wanted to make it sound like a movie. So, you know, like incorporating sound effects as opposed to just music, which is what we did at the start. But I feel that that's evolved a lot more since. And you have to start with the introduction. The first 60 seconds are where you either keep or lose the listener. So under the North Sea, fret and promise. And basically this focused on unexploded munitions under the sea that have been left since World War II. The intro that we did uh, was this sort of, um, I suppose you could say a combat scene, a World War II combat scene. So you've got Spitfires flying over, gunfire and all sorts over the North Sea. And um, I'm sure we'll play a snippet in the episode of it for sure. I had six tracks, so six layers of sound effects. And I don't, I don't think I've had that many layers of sound effects since. It was, you know, crazy. I just went full tunnel vision mode on that one. I love the way you did that on episode 114, Engineering with Dogs. So straight away, Willow was off. She's not messing around. She's not on a sniff like she's on a walk. She's on a sniff, but searching specifically for either bat or bird carcasses. So she doesn't know which one it is. And obviously it could be any species of bat, any species of bird. The whole point is if there is a bat or bird carcass there, then Willow needs to find it, locate it and indicate. 
The sound of the dogs is real, by the way. And as I recorded this during the pandemic, I had to take my dad with me to visit Aaron and Rachel in North Wales and help with all of the recording equipment. Good girl, Willow. Good girl. Yeah. Clever girl. Clever girl. By this point in our development, we'd begun to build a really fantastic listener base and found that engineering companies wanted to work with us. But without listeners or financial support, there would be no engineering matters. And at the beginning, we had neither of those things. Did you feel that risk, John? Absolutely, I felt launching engineering matters was risky because we were having to immediately start producing something that had absolutely no funding behind it whatsoever, other than what we could pull and borrow from from other pots around Rebe. So yeah, it was, a, it was a massive risk. And it took a lot of work to help people understand the concept of what we were trying to do. In the past, I've pitched podcasts to other trade publishers, trade magazine publishers, who've not been supportive of the business case for it or thought that it's going to make any money. And I think their assessment is probably right. Uh, that it, it, like for, for a long time, it didn't make any money. But also, if we hadn't done it when we did it, I don't think it would exist as it does right now. Uh, the We launched at a point where, so five years ago, where there was an interest in podcasts, a kind of a growing interest in podcasts, but, but not really mainstream and not really established yet. It was tough at times. I was approaching people to be interviewed and they didn't know what podcasts were. I was at a meeting of the committee of an industry association and talking about podcasts with them and more than half of the committee of about 30 people i had to go and show that their phone had a podcast app and explain what but one of the terms we came up with it was netflix for radio that was how we were trying to explain to people what podcasts were when we launched it's it's like netflix but it's for radio which meant that when we launched i could identify like two other engineering podcast that might have some overlap and and uh, and and they were very very dry very technical and put out by two universities uh, so they were kind of professors talking about you know in detail for many hours about about technical topics so there was the fact that there wasn't a load of noise at the time meant that building the audience side of it was far less difficult than if we launched the same thing today I remember after making a couple of episodes, I asked you if anybody had listened to it, and you said there were a couple of thousand, and I was shocked because we hadn't even really started to share it yet. But people out there were listening, and it meant we must have been doing something right. Now we've got to episode 218, we've had millions of downloads, and we know that at least 40,000 people listen to each of our podcasts. A lot of my favourite ones are from the early days. Uh, because there was a lot of stories that I'd always wanted to tell that I was able to jump straight into. What about you, John? I just I went and opened up the list of episodes uh, because I thought, you're bound to ask me what my favourite episode is. Um, and I did, I did grab the top 10 episodes. Okay, we'll definitely come back to that. But which is your favourite? Okay, um, Lost in Spaces. I, I just listened to that episode again or about halfway through it. And um, uh, I actually, I, I really, really like the start of that episode. 
it was our first use of a walk-on and it was perfect it was the you know what to 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 misquote it it's something along the lines of um what's the uh, greatest fear uh, anyone has it's getting lost other than falling it's getting lost let's face it what's one of the most basic fears that anyone has of being lost besides falling of being lost and plenty of people are lost in our airports all the time That was Kathleen Boyd from Houston Airports. And according to your statistics, that was the third most popular episode we ever made. And I think one of the reasons for that is it's the first Engineering Matters episode you can find if you want to start at the beginning, which is what some people do when they discover a new podcast. Either you go to the first episode or you go and look for something that kind of appeals to you as as an entry point. Yeah, and that's why listener numbers just keep on growing over time. This is evergreen content. It's delivered in a way that it should last for years, decades to come, that you go back and you can still learn something. If you, if the episode is now, you know, if the technology or, or, or things have moved on, then the story's still relevant in, in, in showing you how we got to where we're at. We're not delivering news content. Although some news events are inescapable. So our journey through the pandemic we're all set to go and deliver a live episode at Leeds University. Uh, so we were what, two years old about that point, um, just uh, coming up to two years. We'd gone weekly. We um, had a full-time sound engineer. That's Ross. And we'd just hired Alex uh, so that we can really keep up with the growth that we were seeing on the episodes. And we were getting, you know, we were starting to work with some really interesting partners and, and we were in, I think we were really in our flow at that point. And then um, everything stopped. We couldn't go and do our interviews anymore. It wasn't allowed. For public safety and our own safety, we were told to stay at home. But recording in person was how we'd got such great sound quality and soundscapes. We had all these stories planned, some with partners, and we just couldn't tell them anymore. We had about three months, two to three months, of absolute fear and dread that everything we've been building for the past few years, both as a young publishing house, but also as engineering matters, a two, something like a two-year-old brand at that point, that it was all going to be lost in in a matter of weeks. But then we realised that this was the biggest problem facing humanity right now, and engineers solve problems. Engineers were making vaccine factories, building COVID tracker apps, improving broadband capabilities and converting exhibition halls into hospitals. We started telling those stories. So I joined Engineering Matters at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that is where I began in our, in our content as well. Episode 57, I think it was, Printing versus the Pandemic. This was a time in May 2020 where COVID was the only topic on people's minds. Uh, the only p- thing people wanted to read about, the only thing people wanted to talk about. 
It is three in the morning, and Tony Thompson's alarm has just sounded, disturbing the fragile silence of the night. He would like to ignore it, but he can't. The shrill bleeping insists that he attends to something urgent. Something that simply cannot wait until sunrise. He turns off the alarm and tries to climb out of bed without waking his wife. Quietly, very quietly, he tiptoes out of his bedroom. Unfortunately, I'm no ninja according to my wife. I tend to wake her up and then go downstairs. And then he heads to a special place, a place where he keeps some very important equipment. He calls it his man cave, but... The wife calls it a conservatory. And uh, obviously at three o'clock in the morning, it does get a bit chilly in there. So when I try to sneak back into bed, I'm also very cold. And the best way to, to warm up is have a cuddle. She's always moaning I don't cuddle her, but at three o'clock in the morning when I'm cold and I've already woken her up, she's not best impressed. But before Tony can join his sleeping wife in their warm bed, he has something very important to do. Something that could save lives. Tony is one of the thousands of volunteers across the country who are sacrificing their sleep to fabricate protective face shields for workers exposed to COVID-19. There was a shortage of PPE personal protective equipment. So the maker community stepped forward with their 3D printers and they formed groups on Facebook to crowdsource splash guards and other items for frontline medical staff. In my first episode, we spoke to three guests, one who manufactured components in his kitchen, one who worked for what I guess you might call a, a boutique but high-end manufacturing company that specialises in 3D printing, and one who led the additive manufacturing department at a university. They were all great guests, but Tony Thompson, working from his kitchen and somehow not angering his wife too much when he woke her up in the middle of the night to reset his printers, he is the pandemic hero, I think, for for us at Engineering Matters. Another hero was Alice Can, a process engineer who set up the UK's first vaccine factory. We heard from her right at the beginning of this episode, and I went to university with Alice. I knew as soon as she told me that she was doing this work, we were in safe hands. Then there was Dan Harmer from Interserve and the team at Autodesk. This sort of job would probably take a year or so in the planning phase and then you would spend six months potentially doing all of the sort of the upfront work and then you would bring it to site and then it would take potentially three years to do a job of this magnitude under normal circumstances. But these were not normal circumstances and this man had been chosen to do the impossible. I got a, an email, I think it came through, it was late on Saturday or early on Sunday morning. His name is Dan Harmer project manager at Interserve Construction, and as the email landed in his inbox in late March, he was preparing to build a school in Hereford, but the email changed everything. At that time, I was quite comfortably sat at home working on this project, like I said, that I'm about to do in Hereford and sort of working out the finer details and the points of that. The message didn't give much away. And uh, it was basically clear desk. Yeah, you've got Monday to wrap all up all your loose ends and you need to be here. I wasn't told what the what the project was. It was just that you and three others need to be here Tuesday morning. I knew it was important because uh, the way that um, that it was pitched over to us that you know you need to be here Tuesday seven o'clock, big meeting. So um, yeah, that was that was how I was told. 
Interserve had been selected to convert the NEC Exhibition Centre in Birmingham into the NHS Nightingale. The Nightingales are a series of seven temporary critical care hospitals spaced throughout England ordered by government to be built in March, just as the number of coronavirus cases was spiralling. The hospitals were set up as quickly as was humanly possible. As the virus spread, it looked increasingly like the NHS would be overwhelmed and the country was at risk of an unprecedented cost in lives. My bosses had been working on it. I think they got the call on Friday. It was either late Friday or early Saturday. So they'd been working on it all weekend at the NEC with the NHS, the military, because they were heavily involved at the start. And the, the trust, they were sort of ironing out what they wanted because I believe the button had been pushed at a, a sort of government level that this was going to happen. Um, so we were engaged then, we were, we were mobilised, we, we were ready to go. Ready to build phase one with 800 fully equipped beds in just nine days, followed by work to equip the site up to a total of 4,000 beds. An effort that would see 400 contractors, supported by 60 Gurkhas, work over 40,000 hours to complete it in just nine days. Engineers were doing amazing work and people wanted to hear about it. So, yeah, we had a, a, the, a initially it was really painful, but then we quickly realized that podcasts or we started hoping that podcasts are going to thrive through and grow through the pandemic. Um, and actually, with everybody being distributed back into their homes and, and out of their offices, the podcast became we, we, we were delivering to people's pockets, we're delivering to their phones. So it didn't matter whether in the office or elsewhere. We were a reliable route for actually continuing communications. And this was recognised by the publishing industry when Engineering Matters won a host of podcasting awards in 2021 against competition from all over the world. The Publisher Podcast Award named us Best Technology Podcast, Best Business to Business Podcast and gave us an award for our unique commercial model where we found ways to tell these amazing stories with engineering partners. We were all really totally blown away by the award wins. A lot of effort goes into every episode and we like to pat ourselves on the back and enjoy Thursday afternoons when the episode's gone out and by Friday morning we're all back on it again. So getting recognition from our peers and actually getting that three years in a row has really been something special for us. Awards aside, podcasts are only as good as the stories they're telling. And as we expanded the team, new ideas came forward. So I like to do anything that relates to resource generation because I really think that we are butting up against the limits of what our terrestrial resources can supply to us as a species, and these are the real challenges to solve. A finite world can't support infinite growth, and that should be obvious to everyone, but tragically it isn't. Engineering can help eke that out, but we have really big problems to solve. And that's why I particularly like space, because the potential for life to expand beyond Earth boggles the mind. The, the, the energy and materials of the solar system can support populations of such orders of magnitude uh, that we get into the realm of unfamiliar prefixes to express them. You, you, you probably tell that futurism is a bit of a passion of mine, um, but 
orbital rings, O'Neill cylinders, Dyson swarms, all a lot more speculative than engineering matters typically indulges in. Um, regardless, very few things in human history have ever been as important as our need to establish some of our industry at least, if not ourselves, off-planet. And Alex, I think it was your passion for this subject that convinced NASA to come onto the podcast. Often the really big organisations, the real famous ones, are hesitant to speak with trade and engineering media. You know, we're, we're not the Times of London. We're not the Wall Street Journal. Um, but pitching an episode on NASA's Lunar Gateway space station and having them put forward someone from Mission Control was a bit of a coup. And it's because they recognise that building infrastructure in space to facilitate our next steps out there is something that isn't getting as much attention as the very large rockets that we're launching from Earth. And it's critically important to build this space economy. In 2017, NASA was directed by the White House to return astronauts to the moon. The Artemis programme was born but there would be some key differences to the days of Apollo. The programme is more ambitious than a few quick visits. Returning astronauts to the lunar surface by 2024, including the first woman to set foot on the moon, will take dozens of launches and cost an estimated $35 billion. And this is only part of the story. In the late 2020s, it hopes to build a lunar outpost and begin a sustained human presence on the lunar surface, a moon base. The Apollo missions that, that were fantastic and landed via the Saturn V and, and launched the crew and the landers to the lunar surface, those were three-day missions to the lunar surface. They had to take everything with them and to come back with small samples of a return. This is Sean Fuller. He's NASA's international partner manager for Gateway. There are so many components of the space station made by so many agencies. He is the perfect person to give an overview of the program. As we go now into what we call sustainable exploration, we look at a stepping off point, and which is what Gateway is. It's a location that landers can fly up to, much larger landers, and stay in lunar orbit. The crew then comes up, they will come to Gateway, the opportunity to research on Gateway as a small station in a completely different environment than we've been in before but then also crews to get into these landers and go down to the surface and do their work on the surface. And we're talking a minimum of about six days. So, so our orbit on Gateway. Yeah, when really when I remember working on my first episode, which was about space. So I think that's a nice way in because it, you know, it's interesting to almost everybody. Which is perhaps why our most popular episode of all time created with one of our long-term partners, geodata company Fugro, is episode 128, Positioning Satellites in New Space. We would hope that we don't have large satellite collisions. The, the problem with a cloud of, I, I would say it's not so much a cloud of shrapnel as it is more of a cloud of bullets. And how do you go up with a fishing net or a bucket and, and stop a cloud of bullets? This is Tyler Jones. He's a program manager and senior advisor at the Norwegian Space Agency. And he's talking about something called Kessler syndrome. 
All the space agencies are, are trying to understand what this environment looks like and trying to understand legally how they can say, okay, we all need to work together to coordinate because we want we want to be responsible users so that low Earth orbit and the other orbits you know, are, are clean, safe places to be. Kessler syndrome is a theoretical event proposed by NASA scientist Donald Kessler in 1978. As space around Earth becomes more crowded with satellites and debris, the risk of a collision grows. In a sufficiently crowded domain, all it takes is one collision-creating debris. One collision leads to another, and with orbital speeds in low Earth orbit greater than 25,000 kilometers per hour, even small objects weighing a kilogram become dangerous, capable of pulverizing a satellite and littering space with more satellite killers. We don't have good ways to, to deal with this, you know, hypersonic cloud of small bullets. In the worst case scenario, the cloud of destruction could render key orbits around the Earth too hazardous for most applications for years to come. To prevent this kind of doomsday scenario, Fugro CEO Mark Heiner explained that the company had developed a new space navigation system for low Earth orbit satellites. And, and, and we had to work on it because technology is obviously the differentiator there combined with the expertise of the people that we have. And what they are providing is a high-accuracy, real-time satellite positioning technology called SpaceStar. It allows the satellite to receive precise orbit and clock corrections from those higher-altitude geostationary satellites. Which means centimetre accuracy. And the normal standard satellite navigation uh, you using your car, for instance, doesn't have any correction signals. It only knows that it needs to be on the road. It doesn't really know what lane it is. Now, with the correction signals, and we can do that on land, but also in space, we can actually have centimeter accuracy uh, uh, data because we have a network of correction uh, yeah, stations around the planet. We upload that information into the space again and then send it out via geostationary satellites. And, and if you have the right software and antenna to receive that correction signal, you can have yeah, centimeter accuracy anywhere on the planet and into space, certainly at low orbit level. Mark says Analyzing listener numbers is not an exact science, and there can be many reasons why episodes are really popular, from the way the podcast is shared to certain topics that attract interest, such as space or news-related subjects. Our most popular episode had twice as many listeners as usual. I know the number one was just over 85,000 in total downloads, so it's like just way more than I was expecting. The second most popular episode was on a completely different topic altogether. Artificial intelligence in project planning, created with another of our long-term partners, Atkins, which is a member of the SNC-Lavalin group. We believe that decisions made early on in projects have the chance to create or destroy very significant value. And at the moment, the number of options or uh, the level of detail that can be considered early on in projects is very heavily constrained. 
But there's a real opportunity here, I think, for the engineering community to use artificial intelligence and big data to try and pull together these different data sources and really at this early stage in planning to bring the voice of people and communities on board in decision making. Our world will change. Things will start to look different. You will start to see things in the world that are strange and feel just like who designed that and why does it look that way? These were both made in 2021, and it's nice to think that people are still downloading and listening to episodes that we made a couple of years ago. I remember listening to a few episodes before I joined and thinking, I'm not sure how I'm going to get my head around creating some of these episodes, and I can't even understand some of the concepts within them. So it's a little bit intimidating joining, especially with everyone having a long background working in engineering and media. But it was very exciting getting to learn about all of these new areas and having a team of people able to sort of hold my hand and take me through that process. Johnny joined Engineering Matters in April 2022 and immediately became an award-winning podcaster. I think it was only my second day was the Publisher Podcast Awards. And so that was, I went along to it with a few other people from Engineering Matters. So it was the first time I was meeting everyone at the company. And uh, Engineering Matters won an award that night. So it felt a little bit embarrassing being congratulated for winning a podcast award for a podcast that I'd worked on for less than 24 hours. This was the second year in a row that we were recognised as having one of the world's best technology podcasts. But it also saw our sound engineer, Ross, recognised with an individual award for his skills as an audio producer. Fortunately for Johnny, we won for the third time in 2023, so... I guess I can take some, uh, a little bit more credit for winning the award again this year. So it wasn't all in vain. And the breadth of subjects that you've been reporting on has been amazing. From the concept of gravity energy storage to semiconductor chips and how to build a railway. Every now and then when we're in a meeting discussing an episode, it turns out someone is an expert on an incredibly niche field of engineering that I had never even heard of before we started making the episode. So that's always helpful when you're writing an episode. Someone's an expert. The crane industry is one that works on pretty tight margins because they're typically smaller, often family-owned businesses, you know, who are working in between governments and international engineering firms. So they're very price conscious. Will North is an expert on cranes. He joined Engineering Matters just after Johnny, and with 15 years of experience as the editor of Cranes Today, there is nothing that he doesn't know about lifting equipment. Which might be why episode How to Plan a Lift, number 131, is another of our most popular. What was exciting about it is we were looking at something that I think people don't think about a lot, the the planning of lifting operations, which is... It seems simple, you know. I know how much I need to lift, so I just get a big enough crane. But of course, when you do that, you're talking about, you know, lorry loads and lorry loads of kit being brought on site. So the guy we talked to, a guy called Andy from Select, who is their, um, essentially their head of lift planning, talked us through how he'd use a tool from Leap here so that he could 
you could get a smaller crane closer to the site navigating a whole set of different obstacles and it was a real chance to see someone who's got a real passion for the industry who's really excited about what they're doing and you know and about the the intellectual work that goes into goes into any sort of construction and engineering project And on this subject, one of the most exciting things that Engineering Matters did this year was create a podcast series on the world's biggest new rail project. So we've just wrapped up series one of, of How to Build a Railway, uh, which is telling the story of High Speed 2 up until this point. And that's been fantastic because normally we, we only have you know, about 20 to 30 minutes to tell sometimes not just a project story, but, an you know, an entire engineering concept and its, its whole history and where it is now and what it is for the future. And we have to fit that in 20 to 30 minutes, whereas we've had about 12 hours to explore one project. I think it's been really interesting to be able to spend so long deep diving into all the elements of one project. So I think to be able to do that again in a different form with maybe some other type of mega project something going on somewhere else in the world and you know comparing how they do it maybe in america or somewhere else in europe or even asia to how we've gone about building a mega project here i think would be really interesting I'd love to make a series on how to build an offshore wind farm. And of course, Alex wants to make more space episodes and look at nuclear thermal rockets, but that's not all. I really want to produce some episodes on shipping. The interconnectedness of the world depends on it and it is one of the huge environmental challenges facing us. Replacing dirty bunker fuel with green solutions and the world cannot decide what to use for fuel. Um, there are hundreds of countries who each have their own opinions on what we should use and that's a really interesting challenge that I'd love to speak about more. So right now I think I'm most excited about the Engineering Matters Awards uh, which we launched entries for just a couple of months ago and already we're getting a whole wave of technological developments that we had no idea were out there and innovative ways of solving issues from climate change, net zero, sustainability, uh, to creative ways of, of improving diversity and inclusion within companies, within projects, um, getting more people ex uh, exposed and involved in, uh, exposed to and involved in engineering. So it, I think that's going to make us aware and give us the opportunity to tell even more great stories of what engineers are up to. When the event takes place next year, I think that's going to be really exciting for us to be involved in as a business. But I think in B2B we can make a contribution to incremental change in the industry and with the awards, with the focus that we give in the podcast over time, long form pieces, we can, we can give some real benefit and as I say, the awards will do that. 
Of course, recognising and celebrating engineering that really could save the world is what Engineering Matters set out to do. John, do you think the ideas worked? Yeah, we're, we're, we're five years in and, uh, and really I, I, I think we're lucky with every additional episode we put out that we're able to carry on doing this because so many others aren't, you know, and, it's, and it, it's, uh, we're really lucky that we've, um, we've, we've built up some you know, long-term in, uh, support from good partners in the industry and that, that, that works well for us in two ways. It gives us the resources to make to continue making engineering matters but also it gets us into places that we wouldn't be able to get in because without that partner and then and their connections and the comfort that the other guests that end up coming into the episode have by us working with that partner there's lots of stories and lots of projects that we just would not get into at all Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and hosted by Bernadette Ballantyne, co-hosting, editing and series supervision by John Young, sound engineering by Ross McPherson, and the man who's helped keep this podcast going for the last five years is Rory Harris. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.rebe.media, and on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Here's to the next five years and more.